You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Trustees of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs voted unanimously to reject a proposal by House Speaker Scott Psyche that offered a way to protect open space in the Kaka'ako Makai area. We heard from Psyche earlier in the week as he laid out the compromise deal on behalf of the House. Today we hear from OHA Chair Carmen Hululinzi. We talked to her earlier this morning. OHA is not interested in a land swap but may consider more money. You know, when we accepted these plans in 2012, it was valued at $200 million. And while we were asking for residential for the last, oh, I want to say six years, but we've been before the legislature for four times, we decided that maybe we should do an appraisal. It's been 10 years since we accepted these lands. So we did an appraisal using FTI, a very large appraisal group that appraises lands all over the United States. And when we finally got the appraisal about a month and a half ago, it was below what we ever expected. And we were so shocked. It was like $46 million versus the $200 million. But this is not far away from 2006 when ANB was offered these same lands for $50 million. So how it got to the $200 million in 2012, just six years later, is unexplainable to us. Anyway, the $200 million minus the 46, we are $154 million short of what we were supposed to be paid. And as you well know, we accepted these lands in lieu of cash because the state didn't have the cash to pay us at that time. So we are $154 million short of what we were supposed to get. So we asked uh, the legislature to make us whole. The $154 million plus the 10 years that we were not able to use the lands based on the 7% average interest that we could have earned would equal another $200 million. So that would be $356 million they owed us. Now the offer that Speaker Psyche made to us, he doesn't emphasize the critical part of the offer, and that was he would give us $100 million based on us signing no residency in perpetuity of the lands. In other words, we would never ask for residency again forever. Now, I think our people that considered these lands in 2012 assumed we were going to do affordable housing, workforce housing that could help our people. So this was a really big difference. In uh Speaker Psyche's offer that was released publicly this week, he talked about the current property uh, assessment value that was established by the city and county at, you know, close to $300 million, 283.7 mm-hmm. was what he said. So how do you jive that with the 43, $44 million? Yeah, yeah, 43. We all know that the appraisal in the city and county is not always the same as the appraisals that we receive from appraisers. And in this case, that $283 million is based upon what it was valued to us in, in 2012. The $200 million was the last price they got on those lots. The $83 million is probably an increase in the assets that the appraisers in the county saw. However, the true appraisal is done by an appraising company. And even my property here on Maui is uh, not the same as an appraisal done by an appraiser. This issue of a easement to protect uh, the open space in per- perpetuity, um, so how are you folks looking at that? The easement that Gatsaiki is asking for is over all the lots that we have. And it's, a, it's an easement, first of all, for a no residency. But it's not only for no residency. It's for height. It's for views. Basically, they can close us down and make all of our lot parks. And that's not why we accepted these lots at Kaka'ako, because we expected it to be an economic engine for our people in perpetuity. You know, and I'm so sad that we lost uh, Colette Machado, you know, and her collective knowledge, you know, and other trustees who have uh, served on the board. We've also lost, you know, Ostender, you know, folks that have some of the institutional memory and the back and forth with the state, you know, uh, not just over the, 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 the money that is owed to the Native Hawaiians, but even the formation of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I just wish we had that collective mana. I was there mana. when we accepted these lands, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was there when we accepted these lands. And so share with our listeners more of the thinking and why the trustees today think that this offer that Psyche has come up with is not good enough. Well, it doesn't pay us what we're, what we're supposed to have gotten. We're owed $357 million more based on the appraisal. We have to believe that the appraisal is a true appraisal. I know the difference between the county tax office, and, and I know there's differences all over the state of Hawaii in the different tax offices as far as value. Some are very low, some are very high. In this case, it's based upon what the value was put on it in 2012. You must know the shock we got when we got the appraisal. What? How can that be? You know? So I gave a copy to Peter Psyche. You know, he too, I, I guess, didn't take it seriously. Yeah, because of the disparity. You just kind of wonder why so low. Right. I think the most important part was his asking us for the easements. That was that was a game breaker. The easements would, and everything after that was contingent upon our signing the easement, and that was not acceptable to the board. Basically, he was turning our lands into a park. So turning the stone over in the offer, you talked about money so that we could get an inventory, so the Department of Land and Natural Resources can do what it should have done a long time ago, and then, you know, money for the wharf repairs. The wharf repairs shouldn't have been included in this proposal because the wharf was in that state in back in the 1970s, and it was not disclosed to us when they passed the lands on to us. In real estate, you must disclose, and there is a documentation in, in the state uh, documents that they knew about the disrepair of the bulkhead and the revetment, but it was never told to us. So that was part of this, this, the discussion as well. Now, on the uh, inventory of our ceded lands, that shouldn't be included either because it has nothing to do with, with Kaka'ako and the bill that we introduced. However, 100000 would never uh, pay for an inventory. That is a really big job. We're talking about millions. And inventory means looking at every piece of land that is under the state stewardship in the state of Hawaii. And so your your bottom line then? My bottom line is that we cannot accept those easements that he proposed, not at all. The state would control our lands, and that cannot be. And the issue of, of what type of housing that you would build if you got the ban lifted? We would build affordable and workforce. We would have a few market uh, houses, uh, not houses, but uh, units, so that we can offset the aff- affordable. We'd like to subsidize the affordable section because we know that that's an expensive place to live. Hopefully we can build something within affordable numbers. And if we can mix it up, I think that would be a healthy way of living. OHA has said that you want the same rights as developers in Kaka'ako, Mauka lands. Mauka, yes. Yeah, we're not asking for special treatment. We're just asking for equal treatment. When we took these lands in 2012, Catherine, we were told that we could come back to the legislature and ask for the entitlement. We were encouraged, and and that is what we've been doing. We've been coming back and coming back, and we don't understand why the answer is no. There's a lot of parks in Kaka'akumakai. We're only 14% of of the lands there. There's 200-plus acres. We only got 30. Oha sees this as valuable land for the development potential. There are others yes. who might see this as valuable land because it is open space. Like Al- Alamoana Boulevard right, right down the road. Mm-hmm. The it's Alamoana precious Park. now. Massive. Yeah, th- yeah, things have changed and now the value of open space, there's a high price to pay You know, without that. I don't know. Uh, what do you say to people who say that there's a higher value for open space? I can't say anything to them because they're entitled to their own positions, but we were given these lands so that we could make it an economic engine for our beneficiaries. Is OHA open to a swap somewhere no, else if, if you had if you had uh, an equal formula? No. Why we not? We are not open to giving up these lands because our Hawaiians lived on those lands and then they were moved out. The Hawaiians would want to have that those lands back and we're happy to have it we're willing to uh, discuss 
uh, land payments for the amount that the state owes us. You know, we're we're open to that but we're not willing to give up those lands. You know, one perspective might be, you know, maybe OHA can do better than those developers on the Malka side, you know? I think we can, because we plan to put in a cultural center that's going to bring our local people there. We don't see the local people in all the dark apartments at night. I mean, you drive along Ala Moana, and you look up at those beautiful condominiums, and it's all dark because it wasn't built for our people. We want to build for our people. We want retail and commercial down there that they want, that our local people want. We want to build the first Hawaiian cultural center in the, in the state of Hawaii. Do you know that we Hawaiians don't even have a cultural center? Yes, that was a point that uh, the First Lady made, that yeah. every other group has a cultural center except the Native Hawaiians. Yes, and we want that. Anything else, just closing thoughts about the message that you want to get across? Our purpose is not to aggravate our people, but to present something that if they see it in the future, I think they'll be really happy with it. We just want to be treated the same way as the developers across the street. We are not developers. We are mission driven. Our mission is to improve the conditions of the Hawaiian people. We are there to improve the conditions of Kaka'akumakai, our Haku'one so that it can benefit our Hawaiians and all the locals. That's our purpose. That was Carmen Hulu-Lindsay, chair of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, talking about why the trustees rejected the compromise offer made by House Speaker Scott Psyche earlier this week over development at Kaka'akumakai. Molokai residents have been taking to social media recently to vent their frustrations with Mokulele Airlines. They claim multiple flights have been recently canceled or rescheduled with little or no notice. Mokulele is the only airline servicing the Friendly Isle and is often the way, the only way, residents can make it to medical appointments on neighbor islands or to see family. It became the sole carrier to the island after Ohana by Hawaiian Airlines stopped service in 2021 and the Molokai Ferry shut its doors in 2016. Mokulele's parent company, Southern Airways, recently inve- invested $10 million in the airline and purchased three new aircraft. The conversations Russell Subiono reached out to Senator Linda Coit, whose district includes Molokai, to hear how lawmakers view the situation. So I am very aware, because I'm at the airport, I get the same texts and cancellations and rebookings. The early morning text, the flight has been canceled, calling. So no stranger to what's happening at all to Mokulili. The frustration is real. All people are traveling back and forth from Molokai and Lanai to Honolulu. It's very frustrating. At the same time, you have an airline that has, like many businesses, are looking for workers, they're looking for pilots. Pilots have taken better positions and better bonuses when other airlines are also recruiting. So, you know, like any business, they're they're struggling. They're struggling to find employees. At the end of the day, if there's no pilot, that plane does not fly. There's not much we can do aside from the request was to take a look at the prices. Prices are really high. Mokulele has pulled funds from outside of the state to fund their fleet that is here in Hawaii. At the same time, let's not forget, Ohana Airlines was also on Molokai and was hit with the same complaints of five fares and was told at some point, you know, we really don't need you guys because you guys are on Monopoly. And they picked up their plane and they left. So, you know, it's frustrating, but, you know, we live in an isolated island. We know the challenges. And at the same time, we can't force any airlines to come in but we've always welcomed an airline that would want to come in. And I've reached out as a senator for the district, and I'm hoping that my colleagues and other other people that represent them at, at the political level will also do that. Versus, we know what all the complaints are. We're still working together for solutions. And at the end of the day, I would think that we would spend more energy looking for solutions instead of trying to bash an airline that's still, still trying to operate and we go from there.
as far as you know, it's it's more of a staff-related issue more so than mechanical issues. So it's both. As you know, this past weekend, we had severe weather in Honolulu. So while Molokai was, was beautiful, Honolulu was pounding rain. We had freeways that were flooded. We're having a repaving going on in Honolulu International Airport. The runway is taking a toll. So again, we need a safe runway. And the delays will stem because now you hold outside until you have clearance. So it's not just Mokulele, it's Hawaiian Airlines, it's United. Everybody's being delayed. Staffing issue, weather issue, mechanical issues all occur. Mechanics stemming from parts. Many of us that have businesses have been waiting for parts and supplies, whether it be restaurant businesses for their equipment, airlines. Parts have been backed up for six months, bare minimum six months. Some of the equipment that many businesses also have, and I'm not just saying Mokulele, but many of the businesses no longer get some parts that are not made in foreign countries. So, you know, we have to look at the logistics of if you are operating a business and you're trying to maintain and have backup supplies, consider that because it costs money to operate an airline, costs money to operate a restaurant. You go into the restaurant and there's a lot of open tables, but there's no weight help. People, for some reason, not coming back to work. So there's a lot of job vacancies. And in this case, they have a tremendous staff, but, you know, the staff is trying to check people in. They're in no control of the weather of planes needing to be checked for FAA clearance. You know, we want those planes to safely take you and bring you home. And at any time, if that plane has a mechanical issue, I prefer not to get on the plane. I would say better late than never. But these are the challenges that we face living on Moloka'i and Lanai with a single airline carrier. How do you feel Mokulele's response to the frustration has been? In one particular social media group, I've seen people reach out to Richard Schumann, I believe. He's the executive vice president for Mokulele Airlines, I believe. But he seems to be fairly responsive. You know, Richard has replied to people and and medical needs. And, you know, he has offered up his cell number to call while they try to juggle around passengers, especially for medical needs. But if everybody doesn't know that, then communication has been a big issue. And all that the people and the residents of the two islands are asking is, at least communicate with us. There is a delay to come out and say, you guys, we apologize. There is a delay. Just communicate, not let them sit there for 40 minutes, starting to look around at each other and goes, oh, now what? You know, communicate is key. Richard has responded. Several weeks ago, we had a medical emergency, and I can tell you that the individual person that needed medical attention, we are challenged with ambulance services on air flights, air ambulance, and Mokulele stepped up to the plate to help accommodate that individual and the doctor to bring her safely to Queens. So passengers are moved around to accommodate that. But again, you know, here you have a 28-seater sob. If there's a mechanical issue and that plane goes down, we need three Cessnas to catch up, they've injected from their main company $10 million. And I just like to be clear because people are saying that the state gave them $10 million. The state did not give taxpayer dollars $10 million. It was the corporate company of Mokulele that gave that money to upgrade its fleet as well as support behind trying to accommodate as well as, you know, wages and stuff because, you know, they got to be able to work for good wages. When we think about solutions to the current situation, I know a lot of people who are frustrated, they often reach out to their community leaders, their government leaders. Is there anything that the state or the Department of Transportation can do to help increase options and ease frustrations? So state is in charge of airports, not airlines. But I introduced a bill for a $1 million subsidy and to be real clear, it wasn't to give it to the airline. It wasn't to give it to Mokule. The bill does not say that. People need to read the bill because they spend so much time on social media trashing it. The message is that it's to help the people that live there. It's to help offset their prices, whether or not the airline is Mokulele Airline or any airline. We're spending too much energy trashing something instead of working together and figuring out if this is not what the people of the two islands want, then I'm sure the funding could go elsewhere to help others. But at no time was that bill intended to be given to the airline. It was given to offset the costs of travel 
for the people of Molokai and by request of the people of Lanai, which was a fair request, was to also include Lanai in the bill. The bill is not to address the delays because we're in no control of the delay of any airline or any business. And I think that's where the community needs to learn how to read a bill and to testify and weigh in on the bill and give advice or comments on it. It's frustrating when we try to work as hard as we can and they reach out to one individual that they figure will solve the world's problems. This is great for dialogue. So if they engage the process and be part of the solution with testimony, they can reach out to their own representative because the bill was heard yesterday in finance. And if they're not asking the right questions or if they're not saying, can you please add in, we want this considered, then your representative or whoever your senator is, they're not doing your job. They're calling for transparency. This is as transparent as this process gets, which is why we send out emails, we send out information so that they can be part of the process. This is not a monopoly. Any airline can come into there. At no time was this ever a monopoly. Businesses choose not to come because we haven't been so, been so friendly with business. And investment-wise, people have said, wow, we came Molokai. But that sign says, come Molokai, spend your money and go home. Many have felt insulted by that and chooses not to come. It hasn't been friendly for the friendly aisle because we also don't want full-blown overdevelopment of that island also to retain its, its beauty. But, you know, we cannot continue to ask for different businesses and airlines to come if we're not going to be so welcoming. There's pros and cons to everything. And this is the con right now. We have one single airline and that airline is basically committed to staying. And yeah, they're going through a lot of roadblocks and bumps in the roads. People need to understand there's so many moving parts that's happening. And at the end of the day, which is why we have the different committees, is to allow them to weigh in. Give you a mana'o, like share your mana'o, not chastise or harass the situation by saying, are you politicians pilau? No, not all of us. Yeah, not all of us. We're trying to work to our process, but then give us some advice. Give us some solutions. We don't have the answers to all of it, but we're trying to find a solution because everybody has a different mindset and we're trying to help the situation, not hurt the situation. That was State Senator Linda Coit, who represents Molokai. She was talking to HPR's Russell Subiono. The Senate introduced a bill this session uh, that is looking to establish an airline subsidy program to help offset the cost of airfare for Molokai and Lanai residents. We'll have a link to it on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines with international service to Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific. More information at hawaiianairlines.com. Is it possible to fall in love with a chatbot? Many people already have. And my guest this week says it's not as scary as we might think. After spending a year speaking to so many users, like maybe one man's fake person is another man's lifeline. AI blows up the dating game. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Reality Check with Honolulu Civil B today looks at police body cameras. It's been a few years since the counties first began adopting the practice. Reporter Jack Truesdale joins us. Hi, Jack. Hey, how's it going? Good. So refresh our memories. You know, when did we start using these here in the islands? Um, some pilot programs, like in Kauai, started as early as 2010. 
2014. Um, Honolulu started in 2018. Um, so it's been a while. And so these have been helpful in many cases. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of the stories across the country about body cams because uh, it can help. It can hurt. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, your story today is that, uh, you know, the cops are getting used to wearing these things, but the work is piling up for the prosecutors is the headline of your story today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the cameras definitely have a, a sort of cutting both ways effect. Um you have, you know, hard evidence now of what happens and certain police officers, the ones who have to wear them, interact with the public. So, you know, complaints that people might make about police in the heat of the moment, they're angry, they got pulled over. They might say, oh, this officer was acting unprofessionally. And then the department can then look at the body camera and determine whether that was true. Then you also have cases of the cameras catching police shootings, which, you know, is helpful for us journalists. Um, There have been some high-profile cases like that. Um, But then, yeah, when it all has to get processed, you then have hours and hours of video footage that prosecutors have to sift through. Um, So that's left, at least in Honolulu, the prosecutors calling for some more hands um, to help through all that footage. Yeah, because it can be monumental. It's pretty tedious. Right, yeah. And, you know, for each, let's say you have an hour-long incident and you have one officer show up and then another and another, just the more officers you add, that's like another hour of footage. Um, And, you know, theoretically, you could find little bits of evidence that would help a prosecution, um, but you just have to kind of sit and wait and watch the entire tape to see what's there. And then you also have to, depending on what's going to happen with the footage, redact certain parts to you know, keep certain identities um, private, like if you know, they respond to a, a, a case where kids are involved or someone's um, you know, naked or something, you have to blur all that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it makes a lot of work. Yeah, but it it can be a valuable tool. But yes, uh, obviously a razor's edge uh, for some. Um, but you know, I think initially, what the the union, um, Shopo, right, the police union, they weren't real keen on this. Yeah, back when Kauai was trying to start their program, um, Shopo, under former leadership, um, filed a, a complaint against them. Um, with the Hawaii Labor Relations Board saying they were basically trying to um, change workplace conditions um, without going through the collective bargaining process. And they actually pushed that up through uh, two appeals in the courts, but then it eventually just got thrown out and Kauai went, a- went ahead and implemented the program. Well, gosh, so so the there seems to be buy-in on this and um, what the programs yeah. that fund it are just being re-upped? Yeah, I'd say by now uh, police departments are kind of seeing that they are a helpful tool. Um, you know, recruits are using them in the academy, so it's they're trying to make it a thing where it's just part of being an officer and mm-hmm. you're used to it, and it's not some additional, um, you know, extraneous thing, but it's just a, a part of the work um, that, can, that can help um, for them, so... They are looking to renew the contract, so it is looking to be something that's here to stay. Well, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, how that all works, you know, as far as, uh, yeah, where they store these things, uh, you know, how long they keep it. Uh, but, yeah, it can certainly uh, uh, help weed out, uh, you know, the police departments of bad apples and uh, and hold people accountable. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jack. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking to reporter Jack Truesdale for today's Reality Check. To read uh, the full story on the police use of body cams, visit civilbeat.org.
the judiciary is putting out a call for help for language interpreters. It just wound up uh, an orientation workshop on Maui this week. Next week is Kauai, followed by Oahu, and then the Big Island. We talked to Debbie Tulang Da Silva about the program. Court interpreters play a critical role in the administrative administration of justice. So our need for interpreters, um, because we are a statewide program, we are always looking to fill the need to be able to provide our limited English proficient court customers with language access so that they can have their day in court and understand everything that's happening in court. Of course, in particular languages, we have more high demand than others, but we welcome all languages. We have typically had over 40 different languages on our list. And even though some of the language requests are maybe not as common as others, we pretty much have a wide variety of requests. So we welcome all languages. And so what are the high demand languages right now? Our high demand languages, our top five, are statewide, our Chiquis holding number one for several years, followed by Spanish, Ilocano, Marshallese, and then Korean. And these interpreter jobs, I mean, they're pretty well-paying positions. Yes, at the minimum, our lowest tiered court interpreters make $25 an hour and are guaranteed a two-hour base minimum. How does one qualify to be an interpreter? Well, you know, what, what do you need? To get listed with the judiciary, they would have to attend the two full days of the basic orientation workshop that we do once a year. After fully attending the workshop, they then need to sit for written examinations for court interpreters, and we do two. We do a basic court interpreter ethics exam, 25 multiple choice questions, and then there's an additional exam which tests their understanding of the written English language, and that also is multiple choice, and there's 135 questions. And we usually allow participants about six weeks at least following the workshop to then sit for those examinations. If they achieve passing scores on both exams, we do a state-based criminal background check, and if they clear that, then they're listed with the judiciary. And then how much notice do you get, you know, when you're uh, called in uh, to do interpreting, you know, once you do uh, pass muster? Sure. Um, When you're on our list, it can vary um, because sometimes we get last-minute cases uh, that are set for the next day. So we do have those short window um, types of assignments. However, most of our assignments are about two weeks to a month or so out. So people do have notice. And the nice thing about court interpreting um, for the judiciary is our freelance uh, independent, uh, you know, contractors, our court interpreters, they have a lot of flexibility. So when they are contacted for an assignment, they can look if it fits their schedule and, you know, whether they have that kind of flexibility in a short window of time to be able to accept um, an assignment or decline. And even if they decline, we don't remove them from the list or anything like that. But, I mean, it's a, a great freelance job for folks that say who are retired or if you can uh, work something out with your uh, job situation where you've got flexibility to be able to do that. Yes, and, and we like to market the flexibility in that because many of our interpreters as freelancers, of course, they have other uh, types of work that they do in the field. So this allows them the flexibility to pick up on a pretty good paying job on the side to supplement that income. It works well, like you said, for retirees. It works well for college students that work around their schedules. Um, And then our part-time employed individuals in the community love it too because they can supplement with a pretty good paying job. And then when you talk about the courts, is this everything from like traffic court, you know, to trials? Yes. And we provide language access services through court interpreters for even transactions at our windows. So, you know, if it calls for a meeting with a court staff or an interview, um, so it's not only limited to court proceedings, um, but within the court proceeding assignments, as you mentioned, it can vary from traffic infractions um, all the way to felony trials. And then, you know, these are uh, language interpreters, but, you know, what about like uh, for the hard of hearing or deaf? 
you know, ASL interpreters? Yes, our court interpreter certification program um, focuses on and includes spoken languages. However, we do, the judiciary does provide, of course, American Sign Language interpreters for our deaf and hard of hearing individuals. And we do that also in compliance with our ADA laws, Americans with Disabilities Act laws. So while you're looking for the top five, like you said, you've got, what, 40 different languages. You're happy to, to add people to your pool. Yes. And, you know, and that was the top five statewide. But even on the neighbor island, our circuit courts on the neighbor island jurisdictions, sometimes the top languages vary a little bit. And so we cater to the needs of the community in each jurisdiction. And so that's why we love to carry a wide variety of languages. And then, of course, being a high tourism state and the tourist groups coming in differ and the trends change. So we like to be able to, you know, service those cases coming in unexpectedly with whatever language we can. I'm just curious. I mean, can you give us a breakdown uh, island by island? You know, uh, what are some of the high demand languages? Sure. So, for instance, our Second Circuit on Maui, their high demand languages are Spanish, Ilocano, Marshallese, and Pompeian. On the Big Island, we're seeing Spanish, Marshallese, Chiquis, and Ilocano in their top four. Kauai, we have Marshallese, Ilocano, Pompeian, Mandarin, and Yapis in their top. So you see it varies a little bit versus the statewide. So we are always watching the trends and the community needs and trying to make sure that we can service those. And does it happen often that you just don't have an interpreter, you know, available uh, for a defendant that needs help? You know, occasionally we run it we will run into challenges where we're having a hard time finding an available qualified interpreter. You know, luckily the state of Hawaii does have a few local interpreting services companies and so we try to make sure that we will have someone available. But if we have to look outside of the judiciary list, we do have some resources that we can look to. And then are there specific requirements, you know, just on the eligibility? Do you have to be trained in a certain language or or be a native speaker? You know, are there other requirements, you know, college degree? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, sure. Well, they do have to be 18 years of age. They have to be authorized to work in the United States. We don't ask for any citizenship or status like that, but they do have to be authorized to work in the United States. You know, and then, of course, the program application does ask for background in language. I mean, we want to make sure that the individuals are fluent. They are filling out the application and attesting that they are fluent in English and, you know, either another language or multiple languages. We do ask questions about how long you've lived in a state that spoke another language. Are you a native speaker? and things like that. And so what I described to you as the mandatory minimum requirements to be listed with the judiciary, there are additional tiers that an interpreter can move up, graduated, um, and those would be based on oral examinations. So they would take an oral exam in their particular language, and depending on the exam that we administer and their results on that, then they may be able to actually be on a higher tier, commensurate with higher pay rates. And then for those who are selected, let's say for uh, an extended jury trial, you know, how does that work? You know, again, we would offer an assignment. We give an estimated uh, time of a trial of an assignment. So, for instance, someone could be called and said, hey, there's a three-day trial coming up. Are you available for these full days? Usually, if it's a lengthy trial and very involved, we may secure two interpreters, and then they would act as a tag team. Because we do follow guidelines in terms of making sure that our interpreters are performing you know, not over, you know, so we don't want to overextend our interpreters, but usually for trials that are multi-day, we're going to have a team of two. Right. You don't want to overtax them. Right. All right. Okay. Anything else that you think would be valuable for listeners to know? Well, I mean, we still have seats available in 
all of the workshops coming up, and so they can call our office or go on the Hawaii State Judiciary's website. It's nice this year we have online registration, so it's very quick to click on the link and get registered for one of those workshops. Um, And we welcome all languages, and we really want to ramp up the efforts. I think what's important for interpreters to know is though even though this is a Hawaii State Judiciary Court Interpreter Program, we are the only government agency that has a formal program that orients interpreters to this field. And we share our list on the judiciary's website, our public website. And we know that a lot of other government agencies, as well as the private sector, rely on that list because they know that the judiciary has a process for qualifying interpreters. So it's free marketing for our listed interpreters, but also we're doing our part in helping to the community as a whole and the state of Hawaii provide language access to to our limited English proficient communities. That was the State Judiciary's Equality and Access Coordinator, Debbie Tulang Da Silva, discussing the requirements and opportunities for those interested in working as a language interpreter for the court. For uh, more information about the certification programs, check out the conversation page of our website later today. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Terry Tempest-Williams, author of The Hour of Land. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about America's national parks, an evolving idea. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. From our distinctive reporting on culture and the arts to our local music hosts and their curated playlists, HPR is here to uplift community voices, gain a greater understanding of our local and global communities, Your financial support ensures HPR will bring you the stories and music you rely on for months to come. Start with a $10 monthly gift to HPR. Donate now at hawaiipublicradio.org. Kahua Theater celebrates its full return to the stage since the pandemic with a Hanaho season. It features the stories of Hilo, Lois Ann Yamanaka's classic book of tales, Local Style. Her book, Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers, was adapted for stage and first debuted in the 1990s. Take a listen. I want to tell Jerry about being a concert pianist. Yeah, right. Good luck. How will he ever do it? Might as well drive the slop truck if you cannot talk straight or sound good. And all the holly sucking circles around you. Might as well blend in like all the locals do. Sometimes I think that Mr. Harvey doesn't mean to be mean to us. He really wants us to be Americans, like my Katong cousins from Santa Ana. I bet he'd think they talk real straight. But I cannot talk the way he wants me to. I can't make it sound his way, unless I'm playing pretend talk holly. I can make my words straight. That's pretty easy if I concentrate real hard. But the sound, the sound from my mouth, if I let it rip right out the lips, my words will always come out like home. That was Alexis Strain, who plays Elle, one of two actresses who depict the main character, Lovey, in Well Meat and the Bully Burgers. The production opened last month and runs for uh, the next three weekends. I caught the show recently, and the author herself, Lois Ann Yamanaka, was in the audience. Artistic director, uh, director Harry Wong talked with us about the play's return to the stage. This whole season was like a season of favorite. If the pandemic hadn't happened, we would have done this as our 51st season, yeah? Because for our 50th seasons, we commissioned plays from playwrights here in the islands, and each play represented a decade 
that the theater had been in existence. So there was the play about the 70s, the play about the 80s, the play about the 90s, and then the aughts, and then the 2010. And that was our 50th season. So then the plan was always to do our hits, like the greatest hits of Kumukuhua Theater. Uh, for the 51st season, but then the pandemic threw all of that off. And then so our 52nd season is the season of hit. But I wanted to do it because one of our founders, Dennis Carroll, who was a professor at the University of Hawaii, taught playwriting and directing and theater history. He always wanted to create a repertoire of plays that we could bring back every now and then, like a repertory company, like the Comédie Française, has a repertory of plays that they pull up every now and then. And then he felt that these were plays that could stand the test of time, that when you brought it back, it would still speak to the community. And then so each one of these plays does that, I believe, that we did in the season. The first play we did was called Aloha Las Vegas by Edward Sakamoto, then Lucky Come Hawaii by John Shirota. Gone Fishing by Lee Tonouchi, and then Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers by Lois Yamanaka. And then we're going to end the season with Folks You Meet in Longs by Lee Catalina. Wow, so the idea was to build a body of work? Yeah, a body of work of local plays that would continue to be relevant to how we live here in the islands. Well, I was just delighted to see the stage version of Lois Ann Yamanaka's book, you know, and the book came out, gosh, a couple decades ago, and it's just hard to believe, you know, that so much time has gone by. And But like you said, it stands tall. You know, the story rings true, no matter how old it is. I believe, actually, that it was first done in 1997, you know, was when we first did the play. But then, of course, the play, you know, is set in the 1970s, and it's the coming-of-age story of a local girl growing up on Hawaii Island. And I think that the universal aspect for me, I don't feel that every play needs to have a universal aspect for it to be appreciated, is the idea that there are two lovies in it. Yeah, there's a character who's going through growing pains in the 1970s. And there's another character, Elle, who's able to reflect on what that character, what she's going through in the 1970s. It's very interesting, yeah? And I think that all of us feel that when we have a memory of when we were growing up. We look back and we go, oh my goodness, I was so like Dom Den or wow, you know? That really meant something for me at that time, even though I didn't realize it. Well, I love that technique of using two actors to play lovey, the alter ego or you know, what that person was really thinking. So it was very helpful to get in her mind, in her psyche about what she was experiencing. It was remarkable for me to see it on stage and to have Lois Ann Yamanaka in the audience that night. It was just a, a real treat. Yeah, Lois Ann is, she's like one of our best writers. And it's really interesting to have her in the audience because she'll always come back with a, like with a different memory, yeah, that she's written about or engage uh, with the cast about how to tell the stories that she had when she was growing up. Yeah, but sharing that, yeah, I'm sure, probably adds just another nuance for the actors. Yeah, and then just to say, you know, I mean, the idea of having those two characters being played, that all comes from the adaptation by uh, Keith Kashiwata and John Watt, the director of, of the production. I guess it's their vision that created that dynamic between the past and the present. I know it was a treat for the actors that played Lovey to, you know, then talk to Lois Ann, and I think they got her autograph right on their books. Oh, yeah. What is it that you'd like to share with our audience, you know, just about Kumukuhua Theater and what you're trying to do here in our community? Kumukuhua Theater was founded at the University of Hawaii with Professor Dennis Carroll. And for the longest time, it was a student organization, meaning that it belonged to the university's programs up there. And then eventually, I believe in the 1989, we became a, a nonprofit. It's always been the purpose of the theater to tell Hawaii's story, to find those writers and all the artists that want to help us celebrate who we are and then confront who we are and to make sure that those stories are available to everybody. What I would like for the theater is that, you know, every now and then we have to upgrade our air conditioning here. We're in a state building, yeah, downtown Honolulu, 
on 46 Merchant Street. And then they come in and then they upgrade our air conditioning. And the guys who come in, they're like, oh, wow, you know, like, what is this? And they go, oh, it's a theater. And they go, oh, yeah, well, what time is the movie? And I go, no, it's not a movie theater. It's like live plays. And they go, oh, yeah. And they go, yeah. I think for them, for even my parents, and even for me, theater was something that you were forced to do in high school. You know, like you had to read Julius Caesar. Or it was something that they did up on the mainland, or it's something that fancy people did, you know? But Kumukuhu is here to tell our stories through theater. The theater is for them, and those are the guys I want to bring into the theater. People who, who don't think that theater is for them, or it doesn't tell their stories, or it's something you have to spend big money on to go and see uh, some musical, some Sondheim musical that they're bringing in from the mainland, you know? Theater is here to tell your story, and then that's what Kumukuhua Theater is about. It doesn't have to be a Broadway hit. It can be the backyard hit, but boy, do those <laughs> do those emotions really ring true, you know? to have yeah. a story from Big Island and mm. coming of age. Yeah, it, it just uh, it resonates. Yeah, it's the joy of recognition, of seeing yourself or your relative or your neighbor on stage and seeing that story being told. And that was Harry Wong, artistic director of Kumukahua Theater, located on Merchant Street downtown. Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers runs tonight and over the weekend and over the next two weekends in April. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that does it for us on this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we plan to catch up with Governor Josh Green. Got a burning question you want to ask? Record it on our talkback line. That's 808-792-8217. Or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website or as a podcast on Spotify and Apple. Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn produce our show. John DeMello provided the backyard quiz Oli and our swinging theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.